Welcome to the broadcast of Faith Mountain Ministries. Now, this one feels different, and it feels different, I think, because I turned 50 on Friday. And many years ago, I felt like the Lord said, you know, you can, you can float along till you're 50, but when you're 50, things change. And I'm not sure exactly what that meant, but I can tell you this, when I hit 50 on Friday, something definitely felt different. I, I've never felt a birthday in my life, but I feel this one. And it feels somewhat good. Uh, not a bad thing, not a foreboding thing, but it feels good. And just had an incredible time with some amazing friends. Uh, just, just gathering together with some of the some of my favorite people on earth, and enjoying together just a night where. There was just so much love in the room. It was a beautiful, beautiful experience. And a lot of people that couldn't be there that I would love to have seen. Many of you listening to this podcast today, I just know if you could have been there, I know you would have loved to have been. And huge thanks to Michael and Lisa Gunger for coming out and just providing not just musical entertainment for the night, but a, a genuinely, deeply profound experience as we just just uh, collectively in the room, turned our attention and affection toward the person of Jesus Christ. At a time of communion, it was really, really, really profound. And I'll never forget it. I'm still processing it. It, it was just an amazing, amazing moment. And uh, you know, the, Michael and Lisa Gunger have gone through a, a journey of faith and in a sense, led an entire movement of deconstruction, and by that have pretty much been rejected by the pretty much the entire evangelical world. And uh, and and not that that wasn't somewhat self-inflicted to the point of essentially saying, you know, for a time they didn't even know what they believed about anything about Jesus, about God, or any of those things. Um, but over the course of the last year or so, these guys have become dear friends and just hearing their hearts and watching their journey and just feeling how, how the Lord allows us to take a journey without condemnation, where you freely begin to question some of the things that you just automatically assume to be true. It's sort of a, an important part of the learning process. You know, uh, we, we give guys like Thomas in the Bible the disciple, uh, we give him a hard time. We call him Doubting Thomas. And you simply ask some questions. And, and of course, Jesus says, hey, blessed are those who have not even seen and still believed. In other words, just take it at face value and hear the message and move on with it without having to require any proof whatsoever. But, you know, Thomas becomes so profoundly impacted by Jesus responding to his questions. I mean, here, look at my hands, look at my feet, place your hand on my side. It shows the scars when Thomas asks to see them. And Jesus isn't offended by this, and he doesn't put Thomas down for this. He actually capitulates to Thomas's question of, can you show me your scars? Where are your scars? What's going on here? Like, give me some details. Let me dig further into this. Thomas becomes so completely profoundly affected that he travels to what we know of as India and, and dies uh, there preaching the gospel to a nation who had never heard it before. And there's a cathedral in Chennai, India, Thomas's name on it, to commemorate the reality that, that one guy got so completely impacted by the, by the beautiful response of Jesus to his questions that he went to a nation that nobody else would even dare to go to. You know, we, we find ourselves in a place sometimes of, 
of having questions and we wonder whether or not it's okay to ask God those questions. But you know, the fabric of truth will not tear at the weight of a hard question. And Jesus is truth, authentic, uh, personal, real, living, breathing, heart beating truth. And he has no problem answering questions because truth survives all questions. And when it comes down to it, if you're willing to ask a question of curiosity and not just simply dig your heels in with a challenge saying, God, you must perform my expectations doing A, B, C, or I will not receive D, then you might find yourself in a position of shutting down relationship with God with the dross of your dogma. When it comes down to it, God is more interested, I think, in our journey. And I think that's why Jesus ascended, leaving the disciples in somewhat of a state of an unfinished process, still having issues theologically, still having issues personally, still having to walk out some difficult things in their own life where they were going to have to commune with the Holy Spirit in order to get things done. And and also in order for them to come to a place of changing and transforming. And so uh, if you have questions for the Lord and you're afraid to ask them, listen, I would encourage you to get, be, get before God and begin to ask him some things that they, maybe you've been asking Google a lot lately, maybe you've been going to the internet or trying to find some trusted person that you can, you can ask questions to and then trying to take their, their answers to heart. You know, in the multitude of counselors, there's wisdom, but there's also sometimes confusion. And I would say before you even start to ask questions from people, uh, get before God and say, listen, I need clarity. And in my question asking and in my seeking, in my searching, I need you to walk with me through this entire process. You know, I promise you, he will. He's really, really good at revealing himself. He's incredibly good at taking us by the hand, leading us on parts of our journey that other people might not even even wonder what in the world, what are they doing in the valley of the shadow of death? You know, King David, what are you doing there in the valley of the shadow of death? And and why do you have no fear? And he comes to the realization in Psalm 23, he's not alone. Why? Because you meet Jesus in the valley of the shadow of death. You meet him in those places of suffering, questioning, confusion, con- contemplation. You meet him much like the, the, the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were tossed into the fiery furnace with these words. It's a king, even if our God doesn't save us, I mean, he can save us, but even if he doesn't, we're still going to serve him anyway. We're not going to bow down to your idol. And yet Jesus doesn't show up to these guys until they get thrown into the furnace, until they're so close into the fire that the men throwing them into the furnace can't even survive. It isn't until they're in the fire and the fire has burned off the the ropes, the binds that were holding on to them, that they stand and find that they're not alone, a fourth in the fire. That's It's a mystery to me, in a sense, why in the world Jesus doesn't show up and keep them from the fire? No, sometimes he meets us in the fire. And sometimes the fire is our own journeying. Sometimes the fire is our, our own questioning. Sometimes the fire is, is, is our own refusal, in a sense, to, to bow down to a, a system of this world that just says, just do what you have to to survive. No, put Jesus first. Put him first in all things. And, uh, and I can't promise you he'll keep you from the fire, but he will meet you in it. And he can actually turn any, any furnace into a place of communion, into a place of worship, into a place where King Nebuchadnezzar, who was responsible for throwing him in the fire, has to yell into the fire and say, would you please come out? And, uh, you know, that'd be a tough thing. It's like, you know, Jesus, do we, do we leave the fire 
and leave your presence to go and face this wicked king. And, you know, Jesus, people say, well, you know, he didn't walk out with them. He stayed in the fire. No, I think he walked out with them. I think his glory was revealed in the middle of the fire and they were able to see him to the point where Nebuchadnezzar could even say, hey, the fourth looks like the son of God. But then when they walk out, they, they just, the three of them walk out, but they walk out filled with an awareness that they're not alone. And when they walk out, culture changes. And it was something about that. When you refuse to deny Christ in the fire, culture changes. When you refuse to deny Christ in the valley of the shadow of death, culture changes. And, uh, you know, you get guys like Peter said, nobody else, uh, uh, everybody else will leave you, but I won't leave you. Nobody else will be as loyal as I am to you. And yet when it came down to it, he denies Christ. And in that moment, culture changed him. But you know what didn't change? The love that Jesus had for Peter. And Jesus' love for you and I transcends our questions, our failures, even, even our inability to, to walk as faithfully as we promised we would. He's just bigger than all of our failures. And I, I can't tell you how much I love him for that. That he allows us to take a journey through this life without condemnation. Well, of course you have grace for this life. You didn't even ask to be here. You didn't sign up for this, and here you are. And so, of course, he's going to have grace for the journey that forms and shapes you. And and I, I don't I don't think that there's any time in in this life that's not redeemable, that's wasted. I think every moment of this life has the capacity to be redeemed. And and can I tell you this? God can do more in 10 surrendered minutes, uh, minutes of surrender to his voice than you can do in 10 years uh, of wandering around the wilderness by yourself. But, you know, he'll redeem every moment in the wilderness. And some time ago I felt the Lord say, you know, Bill, you really can't waste time. Uh, I can make more. You know, the funny thing is, is that when it's time to move and do something, I know, I, I feel it is an intensity, not not so much um, a militant uh, emergency sense, but there's a bit of an urgency behind the leading of the Holy Spirit when, it, when he says, now do this. And I feel it much like I used to hear the voice of my own father when, it, when, when time was of the essence and there was something that was needing to be done and it needed to be done within a short opportunity uh, opportunistic window. I remember hearing Graham Cook say, to seize the opportunity of a lifetime, you have to act within the lifetime of the opportunity. And there are some moments that that have a little bit of an expiration date on them uh, to the point where if if we don't take, take advantage of those, not that other moments won't come, but we'll never know what could have been in that moment. And yet God has a way of teaching us in the middle of our, even our regrets at, at lost opportunities and lost moments to completely drop our own ego and listen in surrendered obedience to his voice so that when he does speak to you and he does say move, that when you do, you realize that the success of that movement is not on you, it's on him. And that Christ is all in all, in all, is, is the one who gets all the glory and all the credit. And yet he turns and he shares his kingdom, his power, his glory with us with us. 
You're stamped with the image and likeness of God, whether you like it or not. You carry the DNA of heaven, whether you like it or not. And it's it's on you. And if you turn your attention and affection toward the Lord, and again, they're the same thing. Whatever has your attention has your affection. If you turn your attention and affection towards the Lord, I, I can promise you that something will will happen in your life where the one who's called the desire of nations, the desire of the nations, that is Christ himself, will start drawing people to you if you're willing to have the hard conversations. Be the ones who who answer the questions, sometimes even with another question, but lead people along on the journey rather than condemn them for taking it. Listen, I can tell you, God loves He loves walking people through this life. Uh, Just as God walked with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day, God loves journeying with you and I through this life. So thanks so much for all of the kind, kind notes and email and messages um, for my 50th birthday. And what a journey this has been. And I believe it's just getting started, probably on on its most vital uh, and most important part yet, and and yours is too. Yours is too. You're journeying right there with me, so I'm journeying right there with you. We are walking through this life, uh, and and I pray that you have people in your life that you can walk with. Listen, if you don't, hang on to this podcast and consider consider us, Tracy and I, friends to walk along in this life with. I promise, when we see you, and you say, "Hey, I'm walking with you," oh my goodness, I'll know exactly what you're talking about, and and we will will embrace and we'll have a moment. Um, where we just share in the joy of this journey together. Now, my prayer is that as you journey through this day, through this life, that you recognize the presence of the Holy Spirit upon and with you. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to John chapter 14. I know you think I'm going to 1420, but I'm not today, but close. John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. just want to read a couple of verses for you. And talk to you about, uh, just, just for a few moments today, talk to you about the mystery of walking through this life with the Holy Spirit as your guide, with the Spirit of the resurrected Christ as your best friend, knowing God so deeply and intimately that he's willing to take you into experiences that you don't have a grid for. Uh, Jesus, when he was talking to Philip, he began to speak of his union with the Father. He spoke to the Father as a man, as you and I do, as we pray to God. And so he spoke in the language of distance and separation, but he lived a reality of union that he's in the Father, the Father's in him, and he and the Spirit, the Father, are all one together. Colossians 2, 9 and 10 bears this out, that in Christ the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in a body, and in him you have been made complete. He includes us in that oneness as well. So again, there's no distance and separation between you and God. Jesus said to Philip, he said this, he says, John 14, 16, he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. At this point, you would think, Philip, or anybody listening to Jesus at this point would think, well, (laughs) if I can't know him, then what's even the point? You know, why would God give us something we can't know? And maybe you felt like your Christian life is like that. 
Like, apparently I'm supposed to know God, but I don't know, I just feel like I can't really even get to know him. And the problem with with knowing God purely from the physical and the intellect is that your eyes are only open to the fleshly world that's around you, the physical world that's around you. God will interact with you in these moments in this world, but it's only to draw you out of the limitations of the physical, sensual world, the world that's perceived by the senses, to draw you out of that and into the realm where he is comprehended, the eternal, unseen realm where his kingdom rules over all. His kingdom rules over all in the physical world as well, but we walk ignorant of it. And really it is by the grace of God that he allows us a physical realm where we can ignore his presence if we want to. Live unto our own self, being gods of our own making, creating our own idols and worshiping uh, uh, sticks and stone and, and, and wood and, and uh, uh, things of our own making. But in the realm of the spirit, his kingdom rules overall without hindrance, without limitation, without irritation. He is completely, completely ruling, reigning, seated on the throne. And you and I invited to be seated within him in that place he's perceived. So now Jesus is going to unveil this. He says, who the spirit of truth, who the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. And he says here now, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. See, the problem with the spirit, the things of the spirit and, and our ignorance of those things is that we don't behold him. You say, how can I see what I can't see? Now you're going to have to look with a different beholder and to see, to know the Holy Spirit is to ask the Lord. And again, if you lack in anything, the Bible says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally, James says this. And if you're lacking in the capacity or, or willingness or un, uneducated awareness of how in the world to behold Jesus, ask him, teach me how to behold you. Teach me how to see you. You know, early Christians spent a lot of time in what I call prayerful, meditative, contemplation, and reflection. And that time of undistracted focus led to such a depth of understanding of God as a loving father whose living word had become flesh in our midst and whose indwelling spirit inspires, still continues to fill us, overflow within us the joy, the righteousness, peace, and joy of that eternal, unshakable spiritual kingdom of which we are an eternal citizen. And you, you and I have this capacity to know God as Father, Christ as the Word made flesh, and the indwelling Spirit that reveals Father and Son to us so deeply. A self-revealing God He is. It is a uniquely Christic way of understanding God that formed, that merged with the thoughts of the day to bring all of the separateness down into a singular oneness to form this belief unique to the followers and disciples of Christ himself that God is infinitely simple and at the same time 
being profoundly more than we could ever grasp or describe with human language. But he invites us to try. So we'll spend an eternity giving language to the amazing, ineffable God of, of, of the universe. To, to know Christ. God doesn't, doesn't dumb things down by stepping into the incarnation in Christ. No, he, he proves that he's willing to walk with us in this journey in Christ. He's, he proves that he's willing to actually unite with us, never leaving or forsaking us, even in our most confused moments, by the indwelling reality of his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ that fills all in all, that holds us all together, even in moments of our darkness, even in the furnace of affliction, even in times of suffering and confusion. He's still holding you and I together, and he meets us there. He doesn't abandon us to those moments. He meets us in the middle of them, you know, you and I have, have a beautiful heritage in this Christian understanding of God as Trinity. And that understanding, if I look through the early church fathers, I understand that that was developing in the Christian community. By the time uh, a, a guy who I'm not a huge fan of, but a guy named St. Augustine or Augustine, depending on how you want to pronounce it, he, he wrote this classic work on the Trinity. But I, I love how Augustine wanted to somehow try to make plain the doctrine of Father, Spirit, and Son, the three in one, the, somehow try to create some sort of, of construct where we could wrap our minds around it and reduce everything down to a, to a language, languageable box. And there's a story about St. Augustine writing the Trinity where God seems to mess with him a little bit. And that's the way that God does. He sort of messes with all of our, our ego-based boxes. I'm like, God, get in this box. So you're so simple that you never become more complicated than this. And so there's a story about St. Augustine writing the Trinity story. It says, And the story goes, Augustine had become incredibly bogged down in all these efforts to try to put into words how God could be one, and yet three, uh, a union, uh, multiplicity, yet though distinct, never divided. And this dilemma was so deep, he couldn't conceptually comprehend uh, God as three in one so as to eliminate the need for mystery altogether. Yeah, that's what he was trying to do. And Augustine's walking alone one day along the beach and he was absorbed in this incomprehensible nature of God. And he stopped at this one point to watch a child, as the story, the legend goes. He stops to watch a child playing at the water's edge. And the child was going down to the water and he was bending down to fill a spoon with water from the, the ocean. And the child would then walk back onto the beach, being very careful not to spill any of the water, and would pour the water into a tiny hole in the sand. And Augustine watched as the child carefully repeated this over, over, and over again. And finally, Augustine approached the child. Confused, he was inquired, what in the world, what are you, what are you doing? And the child said, said this, I'm trying to put the ocean into that little hole in the sand. And Augustine laughed and told the child, you'll never be able to do it. And the child laughed and said back to Augustine this phrase, neither will you get the mystery of the Trinity into your mind. At which point, Augustine says the child vanished into thin air. Now, I think in that, <laughs> you think, is that even possible? But 
you know, with, with God, all things are possible. Think about that. To try to fit and conceptualize the greatness, the vastness, the holiness of God into our mind, a, a box that our mind can grasp and hold and handle and make sense of is like trying to put the ocean into a hole in the sand. And yet, the Bible says you have the mind of Christ, which means you have access to the thoughts of God. And so then, it's not to use our mind to try to bring God down to us, but to allow God to fill our mind with thoughts and ways that are higher than our own, to raise us up to be seated with him in heavenly places. Not to bring God down to our level, but to surrender, to allow ourselves to ascend and to be raised up with him. You know, I think in in that moment, Augustine found himself exactly where people called mystics find themselves whenever they take time to reflect upon the greatness, the goodness, the glory of God, the paradox of God being an other-centered, self-giving relationship of love, mirrored, modeled within the human family of father, mother, child. A love-centered reality where there's a, a group embrace of oneness in the Elohim, the Eloheinu, the embrace of union that you and I are invited to participate in. Listen, you you find yourself at an impasse in your own ability to even comprehend it. It melts our mind. It melts down all of our concepts, our conceptual thinking. And we find ourselves just in a state of awareness at the oneness, not of God, but the oneness that you and I have with God. And suddenly we find ourselves immersed in this divine mystery that you and I can't even begin to conceptually comprehend. Listen, if you don't believe that God can be three in one, then how can you believe that he can be one with you? See, the beauty of this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dynamic is it invites room for one more. There's always a seat at the table. If God is one and can't be any more than one, and there's no room to be any more than, than, than just God singular all by himself, then where does that leave you? It leaves you an outsider. But if God can be three in one, a family, then you can be adopted, receiving the spirit of adoption that gives you the right to cry out, Abba, Father. See, all of our theological formations, all of our profound thoughts that we study, that we appreciate, listen, no matter how deeply we go into this rabbit hole of the goodness of God, the mind cannot grasp the mystery of the Trinity any more than that little girl could have managed to get the ocean into a hole in the sand on the beach. And you and I find ourselves, though, not facing down an abstract doctrine of the three-in-one, but a beautiful poem, a divine mystery, a divine mystery that invites us to participate in, as my friend Baxter says, this great dance. The music is happening, it's playing, and you and I are invited to dance 
in this place of union with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Maybe that dance for you today is just to sit down, to meditate on the things of God, to contemplate deeply an awareness of the presence of the Lord. And see what happens as he makes himself known to you. He says, he says, I will come and manifest myself to you. And basically, that means I'll make myself real. Make myself real to you. And his world, his kingdom, his realm that rules over all is more real than the one that you and I live in right now. That's filled with pain and decay and confusion. And in the middle of all of it, though, we find moments of beauty and we find moments of love. And isn't that a gift from God? That in this temporal existence on this earthly plane, that the kingdom leaks into this world. And so find it today. May you find that it is on earth as it is in heaven, everywhere you go, all around you. Listen, we come to the end of our time today. If you want to write to us the old-fashioned way, you can do so by writing to Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. If you want to support this broadcast, you can do that by going to VanderbushMinistries.com, clicking the Give button on the screen. That's VanderbushMinistries.com. And listen, if you want to get me something for my 50th birthday, I'll give you something that you can participate in with me. And that is to go to Amazon and order two copies of Unveiled Horizon, Reflections on the Nature of God. It's the last book I wrote. And give a copy away to a friend and then talk to them about the book. The chapters are only two pages long, and they won't take up much time, but I promise you they will lead you into a contemplative, meditative time where the Lord will meet you, and you'll find yourself just in a place of reconciled rest, walking in this awareness of the peace that passes understanding. That's what a life in Jesus does. It brings you and I up higher to be seated with him. So thanks so much for listening today. This is Bill Vanderbush from all of us here at Faith Mountain Ministries. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.